Hi, I'm Shereen Patek, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. Burrow is a digital-born furniture and lifestyle company that we last had on the podcast, I believe, to discuss moving beyond Facebook advertising and diversifying marketing channels. It, it feels like a lifetime ago, but I'm excited to have Burrow back on, this time with Stephen Colt, co-founder and CEO of Burrow. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Shereen. How you doing? I'm doing pretty okay. Thanks so much for coming back on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we're, you know, the big, <laughs> it's hard, uh, let's address the elephant in the room. Um, you know, we're operating in this new reality now. And I feel like, you know, one of the things we've talked to a bunch of companies who've been on the podcast, at least in the last couple of weeks has been, and my first question has always been to everyone, how are you? Like, how are things? So tell us a little bit, <laughs> tell us a little bit of how it's going. Um, so personally, I'm doing uh, pretty good. You know, obviously going a little stir crazy. It being in New York and every single family member on the planet is reaching out and, you know, asking like, are you okay? New York's the epicenter. But like, as you know, when you're just inside, you're looking out, you're looking out the window and there's nobody really walking around. So you don't really feel like you're in the epicenter of anything, but I guess that means we're really fortunate to not have Completely. to go to hospitals and whatnot. But yeah, we're Completely. personally doing very well. Good. That's great to hear. So tell me a little bit about how sort of business has been. And, you know, I think one of the things we've talked a lot about is sort of managing and leading and just running a company um, during this time. I mean, basically, this thing just sort of, it feels like it came out of nowhere. Um, walk me a little bit through kind of the first time you sort of really started thinking about this new reality, what's happening. And when you really first said as a founder, like, wait a minute, Something is happening, and I need to start planning for this. Uh, when was that, and what was that like? Yeah, I, I guess it was early March um, when things started to really escalate. I mean, when we heard the reports about coronavirus coming out, obviously we were a little bit concerned. Um, we don't actually have any supply chain in in China, so initially, I think everybody's hope was that this will just stay in China and they'll they'll quarantine it and contain it, and it won't get beyond that. Um, but then in early March, it, it started to become real for us. And like, you know, employees started getting nervous about, uh, about coming into work. And uh, our retail staff started noticing that very few people were actually coming to the store. Um, mm. And it, and it kind of just happened really quickly. And it was actually on this one Thursday um, in March that it was kind of like everything hit the fan. And I, it was funny. I actually was down at city hall that morning, uh, getting legally married. Um, and, Oh, wow. <laughs> just, it, it, it's all things at once. <laughs> just yeah. All big life moments. And saw the, it saw like the stock, like alert that the, the stock market had like, te- you know, shut down. They, they, they hit the circuit breaker and it was like, okay, this is, this is real. There's going to be real repercussions here. Um, but you know, for us, the way the first it's, le- first you got married, then you got married, <laughs> okay. um, and it was actually a funny story. They, they give you like a little uh, ticket um, for when you're waiting in line, and our number was CO nineteen. <laughs> not making it up. I feel like you're making this up. You're just a really good storyteller. This <laughs> can't gonna, be real. We're gonna frame the ticket. Amazing. Um, so you but, get married, uh, and then you're like, okay, time to figure out what I'm gonna do. <laughs> yeah. I was supposed to go skiing that weekend and I canceled my trip, went back to the office and, you know, we, we addressed the whole team and we we're like, Hey, this is real starting tomorrow. People can start working from home and they should, we have no idea how long this is going to happen. Um, and then the real challenge as a leader was kind of, you know, we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know how this is going to impact our business and we need 
people to stay motivated and, and kind of like, you know, react to whatever, you know, is thrown at us in, in the market. Um, but then, uh, you know, we, how do you tell people that everything's going to be okay or that their jobs are safe and whatnot? Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately for us, as things have kind of unfolded, um, our factory in North Carolina has stayed open. They've been deemed essential because they're also making masks and gowns and beds for FEMA. Um, and all of our furniture is delivered via UPS ground. I mean, we are like, we could not be more optimized for like this new reality of, of e-commerce shopping. And, um, because our supply chain wasn't disrupted, um, we've actually been able to operate. And so, you know, at first it was still a little bit concerning because yeah, our retail store was down. Um, but, uh, we were, we were able to kind of navigate it to, to some extent and stay open and, and demand has for sure been shaky, right? Because there's so much uncertainty in the market, both in terms of like job security, um, economic future, et cetera. Um, but you know, we're one of the fortunate companies that's been able to stay open. And so it's just staying in constant communication with all of our employees to make sure that like everybody feels, continues to feel the sense of community and support with one another. Um, throughout this, because it, it is scary. Everybody has friends mm-hmm. or family members that have that have the coronavirus, have gone to the hospital, um, or have lost their jobs. And so, you know, we're very mindful of that, and, and fortunate that that we're not in that position. But you know, it's just it's just difficult to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you said a lot of, of really really interesting things in there. So I sort of want to break it down. I mean, the first thing is sort of I think. Th- this crisis is really, it is unique, and you just touched on this, in the sense that it affects kind of both sides of the market, right? It affects, obviously, consumer sentiment and consumer demand for many companies. And then for most companies, and you're fortunate in that it's not affecting kind of the supply side. I mean, you're hearing stories about how, they, you know, designers will never have zippers for like two more seasons, so they're just going to have buttons everywhere. I mean, literally just radical transformations of entire plants. I think what's been really interesting is to think about this as like a lack of visibility issue. Like there's no sense, I think, you know, any company when they're running, they have a sense of kind of where they'll end up in the quarter, in the month, in the next three quarters. And usually somewhere estimates land between, you know, what, five to 10% here and there of there. But this is the one where it just feels like very quickly, and you touched on this earlier, everything just went upside down. How do you sort of manage, you know, you're running a company, it's, it's a company with physical goods, um, and how do you sort of start managing kind of the lack of visibility while also trying to maintain the business? Because supply chain, you know, considerations aside, demand considerations get rough, kind of personnel considerations get rough, and just all the forecasts are out of the window now, right? Like you have no idea, basically. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Anybody that tells you that they know how to forecast their business in this is is either lying or completely naive. Um, <laughs> I, it's it's hard. I think what it what it means is that we just have to duplicate work a lot, right? Like okay. we're we're reforecasting on a weekly basis for exactly what you're saying because demand can literally change based on a tweet from somebody, right? Like that everything can shift on a day-to-day basis. And so we have to react to that from a marketing perspective. The only number that we can forecast with any certainty is that retail is going to be zero, right? Until, and, but for how long, who knows? Um, and, and, you know, our supply chain has been largely unaffected, but there are still problems that we're dealing with on a, on a daily basis. Like our uh, Italian leather tannery is in Italy, right? And so we, we just launched this new shade of, of leather, a light tan, 
and the second order of it was supposed to ship out and it didn't because the, the tannery shut down. Um, and so we have to deal with how do we manage the existing stock of that? How do we communicate effectively on the website? Um, and then how do we find other sources? And so now we're looking in Brazil for um, a backup and who knows if that'll actually even happen um, or when the Italian tannery will, will reopen. And there's other parts coming in from uh, uh, overseas, like little metal parts that go into the into the sofa. And some of those have been delayed. And then we're trying to figure out how do you air freight them in. But air freight prices have skyrocketed. Like they are literally multiples of what they were previously. Um, and when you're trying to conserve cash in an uncertain time, it's hard to make the decision to say, oh, yeah, we're going to spend an extra ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to air freight in these parts. But then again, if we don't, then we can't actually produce sofas. And so um, it's just challenging. And I think it just means you have to be in constant communication and almost have like more meetings, which creates more work and is tough for people. Um, You know, for better or worse, people have nothing to do but work um, at home. And so, uh, you know, our team is doing a tremendous job of handling the the task, but um, yeah, it just creates a lot of work because you do have to just basically reforecast and readjust all your plans on a weekly basis. We're going to take a quick break for an ad and we'll be right back. How do you start making kind of decisions like that? Because it, it's it's like, yeah, I mean, everything has a dollar cost. And at a point where literally almost I think every dollar is starting to count uh, in a way that was just unprecedented. And this is across businesses. I mean, people, the Easter just, oh, a couple flights here and there wouldn't have even made a dent, of course, to most businesses. And now it's Every flight's counted. Every expense report's counted. Every every expense from you know how to set up kind of virtual events has been counted and things like that. Um, what kind of decisions are you having to make, and how much of them are you? How do you kind of have that tricky balance, almost of like it's instinct and good finances at the same time? I mean, that's kind of to me like a leader and their hardest challenge right now. Yeah. So at Borough, we have a, a, a like a leadership team uh, that meets on a weekly basis and there are subsets of that that will meet like every other day um and so we have a pretty good process for funneling through decisions that need to get made and yeah it's a mix of of your of your gut and then you know doing mini business cases on everything of you know how much you have to spend what the payback going to be how important is this decision how critical is it and then also weighing how much time is this going to take for our team um and what is the impact And, and some decisions get prioritize faster than others. Um, so I'll give you an example that when, when Borough House, a retail store shut down, um, we had been working on this like virtual design consultation program for um, a while and, and had planned to have our retail staff kind of work with our customer experience team to create this, uh, a, a way for customers to get the in-store experience from their, their homes. Um, and so when the retail store shut down, we were like, we, we have to do this immediately. And so within 48 hours, we stood up our V1 of this virtual design consultation program. Um, and that was something where everybody who was involved in that just kind of dropped everything and, and jumped on it. And we knew it was going to be important. And that one luckily has paid off. It's been, it's been generating a, a good amount of revenue for us. But, um, you know, we, we had no data to say that this is definitely something that we should spend our spend our time and money on right like on a normal or a regular time you would have spent all this time on kind of making sure it was worth the input output and now it's interesting how sort of some decisions have been fast-tracked and then how some sort of just get put on hold I mean in a lot of cases 
and a lot of companies, new products are essentially put on hold, but there's a lot of innovation that's been like accelerated really, really quickly. Um, and I'm interested particularly in sort of your thoughts on that acceleration and kind of what, what you found is, you know, consumers, even with consumer comfort with e-commerce, I think is accelerated pretty rapidly. Um, and then how can, how brands sort of respond to that? Have you seen sort of more, have you seen more types of people come in to, to talk to you virtually, um, that maybe wouldn't have before where maybe there was, there were people who weren't comfortable buying couches online, but suddenly now they have to be. Yeah, we, we are, um, you know, our core audience is people who are like 25 to 34. Um, but we do have customers of, of many different, different age ranges and our more affluent age 45 to 54 customer segment over the last couple of weeks, um, has demonstrated a significantly higher urgency or stronger urgency to buy. Um, and, that is the group that like, that is a segment that is probably least comfortable um, mm. shopping online. It's a, it's a segment that traditionally bought furniture in retail stores and they're kind of being forced to buy and to shop online. Um, yeah. And so, yes, I do think in general, this crisis is expediting that shift in any industry that was traditionally dominated by retail, by physical retail. I think it is expediting that shift to being online because anybody who wasn't really quite ready to get over the hump and, and, mm. and purchase online without seeing something in person, they have to. And if they have a good experience, it's way easier than actually going to a store. And so if they mm. like what they get, I think they're going to keep doing that after the crisis is over. Yeah, that's when you hope sort of sticks too, because that would yeah. be, that'd be really good. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and I want to touch on that point you said, like the innovation and needing to make quick decisions faster. I think as companies get bigger and bigger, um, the stakes get higher and there's more time and effort that goes into every decision that's made. And so companies just end up operating slower, right? It's the reason why large mass of companies that have been around for decades are not very nimble, typically. Mm. Um, well, it's and- literally disruption like yours was born out of, out of sort of a lot of companies not being able to do things quickly and not being able to address consumer demand. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And when we started, we had no resources. We had to just kind of start quick. It's like the lean startup method and, and Burrow was um, a, y, a Y Combinator company. So we went through that very early on. And the advice we got then was just launch your first product, like get it out there into people's hands and you'll get feedback. The first sofa you sell will not be perfect. No matter how much testing you do um, in research, like it's going to be flawed. So why don't you just get that information from customers and, and they will respond much faster and, and more accurately than any kind of you know research you can do in advance. Um, and so I think this crisis is kind of forcing everybody's young, old, small, large, all these companies to just get scrappy and figure out new things. And so for us, like the, the borough house at home, ideally we would have had all these tools behind it that we're now developing Right. Um, help people, you know, lay out their spaces and, and design it and all these like virtual. It would have like, been all perfect. Yeah, these <laughs> like digital, digital reality, whatever things. And uh, and instead it just started with a phone. It's just consultations over the phone. And then we can send over text. That messages. old technology uh, coming in handy. Yeah, it's just literally <laughs> texting and talking. Uh, <laughs> and it's working, right? And we'll, we'll get better over time. But I think it's like these types of decisions uh, are having to be made faster 
um, in order to respond quickly to the crisis. And I think you're going to see, like you said, a lot of innovation born um, out of the situation, which yeah, I think is kind of how the best innovation is always born. It's like when you have these new constraints that were placed on you, you have to figure out a way to adapt. And then that creates this like new, better reality. That's really true. And it's, it's funny. One of our one of our reporters, we're actually working on a story on this from Manrita, was you know, she pointed out to me yesterday that a, a bunch of sort of, you know, the original, you know, 1.0 direct-to-consumer brands were literally, like, time-wise born out of the 2008-2009 kind of crisis. And, it, and a lot of them kind of were either people who had maybe just sort of, like, lost their jobs and were like, I'm going to do something on my own now and hit on really genius ideas that disrupted things. And I, I, I didn't, and I was like, yeah, of course they were. There, there's like a whole, there's history of, of this happening and whether that's your silver lining, like maybe that's the one we, we hold on to. Um, I'm curious on how sort of reception has been to, you know, moving this virtually and kind of how you sort of intend on keeping iterating and um, kind of what are some of the, like the lessons you're learning from this other than the fact that you can innovate faster than you think at every point um, that are just interesting and useful to you sort of as a leader, but also just as like in the business itself. Um, with respect to the, the borough house at home. Or, yeah. Yeah. Borough house at home. Um, so again, it's like learning the lessons in real time. And part of that is just hearing from our staff, so our retail staff that has shifted from being, you know, in the store to running this this virtual consultation, um, they are giving us real time feedback of like these are the tools that would be helpful. Like I would love to be able to show somebody this while I'm talking to them. I would love to be able to do this while I'm talking to them. People are asking these questions, right? This is what's important to them, and creating that feedback loop is what's going to drive where we spend our money going forward in in adding tools to this program. Um, and I, and I think it's, I mean, we've always been a very customer centric company. We use a lot of like first person research, um, to understand pain points in how people interact with furniture, how they shop with it, how it gets delivered to them, how they put it together, how do they take it apart? How do they move with it? Um, and every single one of those pieces of the journey of like the total end to end, you know, customer experience of buying furniture and living with it, um, are considered when we design products and then experiences. Um, and so we kind of have that in our DNA already, but this is doing it on the, on the consultation side is like just taking actual feedback from customers instead of thinking, Oh, what are some things that people would want to know? We're just getting questions. And if we get enough questions from somebody or from people, you know, you know, Hey, we need to, if we could offer this feature or tool or whatever, um, that'll really help people make their decision um, yeah. and, and, and gain comfort in, in purchasing online. What's been one that's been just surprising to you? You're like, huh, that really? Hadn't really thought about that one. Um, I think the, the the biggest one is just that I think we thought video was going to be really important and it's not, no one's really asking for that. It's just, is everyone just sick of being on zoom all day. And I was like, no, not, not now, <laughs> no more. I think so. I also think as a side point, I, you know, people have talked about, you know, will, will people be more comfortable using video calling in the future? I think yes. Uh, but at the same time, like, do I think people are going to be having these like video uh, calls with their friends like once, once a month or something where we like live elsewhere? 
and there's no way I've done a bunch of those. It's, it's how infuriating is it when like multiple <laughs> people are talking at once and it's just like you hear noise and like the computer isn't picking it up properly. And you're just like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> it is the worst. We're we're working on a, on a full story about just like Zoom fatigue and how real it is and how it sort of actually transcends for organizations into kind of mental burnout issues. People are just like, I am sick of being on video. This was this is great, by the way. I'm having a great time with you. But all the meetings I have after this, off. Like it's off. It's <laughs> enough. <laughs> enough for now. Um, we, we, you just you mentioned earlier, you know, obviously conserving cash is a big um is a big concern for everybody. Uh, there's only so many lovers. They're, they're just, I think that's the other thing. It's like, there's only so many places you can say, well, I'll save costs. Um, one big one I think has been interesting for me to watch is uh, born online brands like yourselves who do have physical stores, being able to shut them down, saving on rent. Um, and again, going back to this theme of wh- how much of this sticks, do we sort of see in, in a, an actual shift in that like playbook of so many companies had, you know, start online, build a really solid business, move into physical retail, eventually have a fleet of retail stores. I mean, there were, you know, people talking about 20, 30 stores in six months. And I wonder if that's one where actually people say, wait, that playbook, we don't need to follow that anymore. Um, Do you have a sense of sort of how that might work out, not only for you, but just for the industry as a whole? You know, I don't think retail goes away. I think what we're seeing or what we already saw before the crisis was an evolution of retail where it shifts from this like very large format, um, heavy build out cost, you know, kind of model um, to a a more of like a multi-purpose hybrid model in stores. And so where where stores don't hold inventory, they act as showrooms um, and they also double as event spaces um, and then using the retail staff to do more than just work at the store. Um, Right. I think that model is getting is getting expedited more. That shift is getting expedited, um, and so for like for us, you know, we only had one store, but um, Borough House is now for us becoming a not just a showroom, but we're going to be doing more photo shoots there because we are launching new products later this year, and there's no studios to do photo shoots in, um, so we're going to have to do them in our store. Um, and I think the more we get comfortable there, the more we're just going to keep doing that in the future. Um, prior to the crisis, we were using our store as a, as a, as an event space and hosting events with other, you know, partners. Um, and those have been great to build community and get to know our customers better and whatnot and generate awareness. Um, and then our retail staff, obviously doing these virtual design consultations, they can do that, you know, from the store or from home. And and, and we can use that staff because the knowledge that they gain from having, you know, in-person conversations and, you know, phone conversations, um, there's so much to learn across those two types of interactions. And so having that same staff work on, work on those, I think is going to be really important. And so we're just going to see more value come out of this one small footprint, right. Of each store. And we yeah. can replicate that into, into, into other cities. And so I, you know, nothing can replace that experience of trying out a product in person. And there are still a lot of people who, who would prefer to do that. And so I don't think that goes away. I just, I, I do think it, it it emphasizes the need for this like evolution of retail to be mm. more multi-touch and and, and multi-variable for, uh, for for consumers to give them the best. Yeah, experience. absolutely. And I and I do think you're right in that that I think people will be more cautious about just opening stores. You know, it's gonna be it's not oh I'm opening a store. It's okay. No, I'm opening a space that's going to be doing 
this, this, and this, whether it's acting as a second place, I start doing shoots for my marketing, or which is extremely cost-effective and really smart, um, or it's also going to double as this and this. I think there's going to be a little bit less of... Because one of the things was also, you know, last year there was a lot of money flowing into this. There was a lot of funding. There's a lot... And that's all dried up. So I think that we were already sort of on a path, even as far back as January, I was talking to so many founders who were saying, no, this is the year that my sustainable growth, disciplined growth gets rewarded. And that's what, that's what everyone's going to look for. And that's like, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> like, I should hope so. This is not the year for wanton spending anywhere <laughs> in any case. Uh, no matter when this thing ends, I think there's going to be a little bit of a reality check to that. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it's hard. We, we actually made that decision to focus on getting to profitability last year, like, uh, about a year ago. And it's not quick, right? Like to, to change your, you know, pull all those levers and make changes in your business um, is like a long-term shift. And had we not done that a year ago, I think we'd be in a much tougher spot. Um, but we have a very lean team and we have much stronger fundamentals and unit economics and whatnot, um, which are going to allow us to survive this, um, survive the crisis. And yeah. I think for, for a company who's burning a lot of cash and relying on raising a lot of money um, frequently to grow, um, for them to hit this crisis, it's almost like driving into a brick wall, right? Like there's, there's just too many changes that need to be made. Um, and it's not like you can have a team adjust to having fewer resources remotely. Like that's like, it's just a lot of changes to happen all at once. And so I, I think you are going to see, unfortunately, some companies not survive this. Um, but again, like you talked about in the last crisis, the companies that survived the, like any economic recession, um, albeit this one is an incredibly unique one, but anyone who can survive an economic recession is going to be stronger for it. And there's going to be fewer players on the other side, which means that the best companies are going to thrive post-crisis. Yeah, and absolutely. We hope to be one of them. Um, how has uh, your marketing approach changed? Have you cut a lot of marketing costs as part of the cost cutting? Um, and have you sort of been, how have you thought about kind of marketing appropriately and being useful while being tonally appropriate? How has all that changed um, in the last just few weeks alone? Yeah, from, from a from a tone perspective, I mean, I think that's incredibly important. Um, you don't want to uh, be insensitive or tone deaf in a time like this, um, or sound like you're taking advantage of, of, of a crisis by any means. Um, you know, we are aware that a lot of people are spending a lot of time at home, and so maybe do want to upgrade, you know, their living room, and and so we can offer that for them, and we can uh, deliver it to them without having to interact with the person, right? Because UPS just drops off boxes. And so it's pretty ideal for them. And so we want to make people aware of that, um, but also not, you know, rub it in by any means. Um, and so we're, you know, very publicly thankful to our factory workers who are still producing. Um, and the fact that our fact, we're very proud that our factory is also, you know, producing for FEMA. Um, and we're just trying to be, you know, take a very real honest approach to how we communicate with our customers, whether that's on our, our social pages or uh, we're doing on a weekly basis, we're doing these, I'm, I'm doing a, a live Instagram interview with people about um, how they wind down at the end of the day or like make that transition between working and, um, and not working when you're not actually changing locations. Oh yeah. My big commute from my dining table to my sofa. <laughs> it's been, it's been eventful. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're trying to say something different that's like helpful, but also, um, meaningful, uh, for people. Yeah. Um, 
so from a messaging perspective, that's definitely been a, a, a unique challenge and it's kind of fun tackling that one. Um, but then tactically, yeah, I mean, it's just reacting on a, that, that is like why from a forecasting perspective, we are reacting on a daily or weekly basis to, um, different marketing channels and the costs. And then, and, and, and that's like a very data-driven, you know, reaction, but for something like direct mail, I was, you know, we had the thought, oh, can we, can we increase our spend on direct mail right now? Because everybody's actually at home. And then our head of marketing was like, do you actually want to touch your mail right now? And I was like, no, I don't. Like I would use hand sanitizer to touch like the most important pieces. And he was like, yeah, no one's going to read their mail. So we've completely cut out direct mail until this is over. And that's like a gut decision. But, you know, I think it makes sense. And you've got to just like trust that, you know, we should just be spending money where we can react quickly. And that's mostly digital marketing. Absolutely. Based on the lysoling of my mail in the last couple of weeks, I think I think you made the right call. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for being on the Modern Retail Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you stay sane and safe. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. And that's all for today's episode. Thank you, of course, for listening. Our producer is Pierre BNMA. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, leave us a review and a rating. And thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week.